Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 15th, 2022. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I did what I thought at least was a wonderful show with a, a brilliant essayist, Colette Brooks. Uh, we spoke on the dangers of misremembering our past, which I think is inevitable of turning the past into nostalgia. She's particularly interested in photography and the American memory, or perhaps the lack of an American memory. She has a wonderful new book out. It's called Trapped in the Present Tense, Meditations on American Memory. And Inevitably, in these kinds of conversations about memory and technology, we talked a little bit about the great German essayist, uh, uh, W.G. Siebold, who has mastered the art of the essay and has written a series of one or had written a series of wonderful books about the meaning of memory, particularly in a European and a German context. Uh, before Siebold, of course, there was Walter Benjamin, the original, the authentic master of the essay. And uh, Benjamin was particularly, or Benjamin as he's pronounced, was particularly interested in the idea of the work of art in an age of mechanical reproduction. Of course, we live in an age in particular of high-tech mechanical reproduction, an age of photography and of digital technology that allows us to capture supposedly perfect um, memories of audio and video. And what Benjamin was really interested in in this essay was what it did to our concept of authenticity and ironically our notion of nostalgia. Benjamin, I think, understood one of the great ironies of modernity is the more high-tech we become, the more we think we create perfect technology the more nostalgic we become and the more indeed we create a cult of authenticity. We live in an age of the cult of the authentic where everyone wants to be authentic. The most valuable thing of all is to be authentic. And of course, anyone who mentions the word authenticity or authentic are by definition inauthentic. So this issue of technology and memory and the authentic and high tech um, it's something we've talked about a lot on the show, and it all came to mind when I saw a really interesting essay on LitHub by the distinguished American poet Garrett Hongo. Uh, the, the title of the essay was In Search of the Perfect Sound, Confessions of an Accidental Audiophile. It was a wonderful piece, and it's from... Um, his new book, it's a kind of autobiography of technology and memory and authenticity. It's called The Perfect Sound, a memoir in stereo. And I'm thrilled that Garrett, who many of you will know as a poet, others of you may know as an audiophile columnist, writer, journalist, uh, is joining us from Eugene, Oregon. Uh, Garrett, um, have you read Benjamin? Do you think he's onto something in this connecting um, technology and nostalgia? You know, it's really funny you mentioned that. Um, I read him very voraciously and carefully when I was in graduate school. And I know that essay 
very well. The focus on the essay for, of the essay for me was the idea of reproduction or mechanical reproduction, that there were these perfect units of um, industrial production that would uh, create the same image again and again in a photograph, the same uh, piece of industrial art again and again, like a car fender or um, even a recording. And so that the perfection was multiplied uh, and disseminated so that it was always readily available for us to consume. You, your focus in terms of nostalgia of memory is far more nuanced, I would say, and a subtler appreciation of that essay than mine. Um, I was sort of just thinking about it as you were speaking. And um, in a way, it squares with what you say about Seabald as well, that we transform things um, and that the experience of that transformation be becomes the instantiation of the authentic as opposed to the object itself, which is to say, are the processes of our mind, of our memory creates that uh, aura, as Benjamin would have written, of authenticity. So that it is our own aesthetic connection, an exercise of perceptual and philosophic judgment that creates the experience. And so, like I say, you remind me of a much subtler and profound insight regarding that essay that, that I remembered it myself. Well, uh, Garrett, you're very generous. I'm not sure if mine is particularly correct. Maybe it's my own idealized interpretation of Benjamin. I'm making not at all. No, I, 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 it, it makes more space for the idea of interaction and appreciation the individual subject with, you know, the work of art. Well, um, and of course, what Benjamin was particularly interested in was the replacement mm -hmm. of reproduced music or images or video uh, with the copy, uh, whether it was a photograph, um, a piece of audio, a piece of video. And, and that is indeed the, the core... Um, the core narrative in your book, uh, The Perfect Sound, a memoir in stereo. And the, the, the Benjamin element really resonates because um, uh, as, you, as you write, and uh, as, it, uh, as you write in, in the piece taken on, or put on LitHub, um, you say, as my obsession grew, and, and this obsession is this obsession with perfect sound, this audiophile notion to collect perfect technology which will reproduce music, the exact copy of the music. As my obsession grew, I discovered there was something else behind it that was driving me, a search to reconnect with my father who passed away over 35 years ago when he was 58 and I was just 32. So the premise of the book, whilst it is in a part about high tech and audio, audio equipment, um, is an attempt to retrieve memory, is to go backwards. Is that fair, Garrett, in the book? Exactly. In, in a way, you might say that it's sort of a, a refutation of some of Benjamin's assertions that audio introduction would replace the act of memory or the construction of an aesthetic experience with one's own uh, life, you know? So in my book, what I tried to do was to connect with all these moments of um, 
revelation that music allowed me to access. So when I, when I was playing music again, many more memories came back to me of what was associated with that music when I first heard it. And one of the biggest ones, of course, was my father. Right. And you dedicate the book to your father, to the memory of Albert uh, Kazuyoshi. Kazuyoshi Hongo. Uh, and then Keala Oka Hala 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 O Makuana. What does that mean? It's native, it's uh, in the Hawaiian language. Um, and it's a kind of invitation to honor memory and and uh it's about the fragrance of of sponsorship shall i say um and, and oddly you, enough you, thinking out loud here garrett we always think of our children i don't know if you have any children but yes i um, do i agree in, in an odd way we think of our children as very imperfect reproductions of ourselves um so this obsession with your father that lies at the heart of the book, this search for your father through perfect audio equipment is, uh, is, is perfectly logical, natural, and in a sense, tragic, isn't it? There's a tragedy at the heart of this because there is no perfect sound uh, and we can never really remember our parents. Well, gee, I don't want to be contrarian, but I I but was, no, please be a contrarian, Garrett. You're I, a poet. Poets I are remember, naturally contrarian. Yeah. You know, the, your poet, William Wordsworth, said that uh, poetry was emotions recollected in tranquility. And what I am allowed to do through the music is to recollect um, in a, a very prov provoked tranquility that music creates. I know that's a bit of a paradox or contradiction, but it's a kind of inspired inspired tranquility that music creates for me. And in that space, much more starts rushing in, just like sitting or standing in the lagoon and with the incoming tide, and you feel that surge of the current come. And, and that's the way memory inhabits my own uh, mind when I'm listening to music. You I, are I, a poet and you begin uh, after the um, dedication to your father, you, you begin the book with a quote from Shelley, music, when soft voices die, vibrate in the memory. And you also later in the book have a photograph of, um, uh, of Keats's um, uh, uh, tombstone. Yeah, uh, that's has English poetry been particularly influential in, in both in your life and in your work as a poet and indeed as an audiophile? Well, you know, poetry was a way to remember for me, um, a way to capture and reoccupy a space and give it, in some ways, its, its quiet attention that it may not have been able to have while it was passing, while it was incarnate. You know, I, you, you sort of re-inhabit things and give it the reverence, the sentience, the mental space, the homage, if you will, that... Um, the vicissitudes of life wouldn't allow at the time. And I come from a people that allowed themselves no aesthetic moment. Um, my family spent three generations on the Hawaiian plantations, you know, on the North shore of Oahu, my mother's side. My father's side was sort of the intellectuals and the artists uh, and the sort of diffidence, you know, 
that's my mother there and that's me in the high school um, yeah as uh, as your mother and there uh, for people listening you, you can imagine this this is you and your father right no this is my grandfather in my grandmother's cafe on the on Kamehameha highway in oh, okay and what about this photo this is a particularly striking one this is just after the war this is before this is during the war it's 1944 my father was 17 off to boot camp at uh, Fort Bragg in China. He's just been, uh, he just enlisted in the army to fight in Europe. Um, I love the photos, by the way, in the book, uh, Garrett. And again, there's something Sebaldian because this is a book about perfect sound, but the photographs in the book are perfectly imperfect. They're rather grainy. Yeah. Uh, they're full of memory. Um, they're more poetic, perhaps, than exact. They're certainly not high tech. Did you mean to have a a Sibaldian association with, uh, with with photography in the book? That's a very good question. Um, I think I'll have to say the idea of including photographs was my editor idea. Her name is Deborah Garrison, and she herself is a poet. And she did that with my book, last book of poems, where I included a lot of um, photo family photographs uh, as the frontispieces to each section of the book. and. Um, as I started sifting through and collecting photographs, I couldn't just choose four or five or six. I said, I need, I need a lot of them if you're going to integrate with the text. And she said, by all means. And I don't know that she was thinking of Seabal, but I certainly was um, when I started positioning the photographs within the text as, as, as the type was set. And so, yeah, I, I had him in mind. I think... Um, Austerlitz might have been the book uh, that comes most to mind from him. Um, you know, his meditations are much different than mine. I think he has a tone of great sadness and, 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 and grimness even regarding these things. And my, my own tone might be a bit lighter, you know, not frivolous, but more affectionate you know, than, than he than he has. And so when I interact with the photographs or when I describe them or when I dip them in, my tone is much more affectionate about the past as opposed to regretful. Or, do, you or, found, do, do you feel separate from the past? You include these photos, for example, from I think, are these from Japan or from Hawaii? No, this is in Hawaii too. These were the cane workers. Right, they're on the plantation who stripped the leaves from the cane before they were, uh, after they were fired so they could be then crushed in the mill. Do you, um, and, and uh, this comes out a little bit in the book, do you sort of associate in some ways with the, uh, as a descendant of cane workers on Hawaii, do you associate in some way you the experience of your culture, your family with the African-American experience? You certainly, um, uh, you, you, you certainly uh, write in some ways about some distinguished African-American poets, um, yeah, Etheridge exactly. Knight, for example, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and Robert Hayden in particular. Is there a connection, do you think, between what your family went through and what African-Americans went through on their plantations? Obviously, there was no formal slavery, I don't think, in Hawaii. But it was, it was a kind of indenturement more in Hawaii than, let's say, slavery. Um, you know, it's a complicated question because I grew up with African-Americans in Los Angeles. 
in, in, in uh, junior high school and high school um, once we moved to the mainland and they were my they were my friends and we listened to the same music we dressed the same way we danced the same dances um, so I've always you know been in parallel with them in, in terms of my own um, adolescent life um, I also have a chapter on my sort of jazz mentor my old friend William Taylor Right, and you have a wonderful photo of Bessie Smith, one of the great African-American singers. You're obviously immersed in African-American music. Yeah, you know, and my first teacher of jazz was Stanley Crouch, the, the late Stanley Crouch, who schooled me since I was 14, you know, and uh, um, insisted that African-American culture, American culture, Buddhahead culture, as he put it, he's from L.A. too, we're all the same American culture. It, it no, there's no segregation of the cultural life, and it was an insistent position that he had. And when I was young, it made sense to me. Uh, in my own kind of utopism, I suppose, but also in my own life, in terms of the plantation and the 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 woe and the travail of it, this gives us a bit of experience and generational sympathy for hard labor and deprivation, in some ways oppression that African-Americans through the generations have suffered. There wasn't the kind of severe tyranny, of, of course, and there were hundreds of years of exploitation in terms of that history. But it, it gave me a respect for African-American culture. It allowed me, in a way, to respect it all, the, all that much more. Um, you know, and the Black Blues uh, was one of the first musics that I gravitated to. Um, Which is, of course, from Mississippi. I'm curious on um, Etheridge Knight. Uh, I'm particularly curious because my wife is a Knight with a K from Mississippi, African-American also. I just asked her if she'd heard of Etheridge Knight, and she hadn't. Um, how great a poet was he? Oh, come on, man. Etheridge was the greatest uh, he was one of the first big time, I don't know, he, he took me under, uh, he, he published me. The first sort of public literary publication I had was because of Etheridge. He heard and me. He, his life was quite tragic and dramatic. He was in jail. He was uh, in the war. I mean, he didn't have an easy life, right? He says that he uh, died in Korea from a wound and uh, drugs saved him and that he got, died in prison and poetry resurrected him. He was a student of Gwendolyn Brooks by correspondence when he was in prison in Indiana, and she wrote and critiqued his poetry. Um, and, and that's where he wrote a lot of his major work was in the Indiana State Penitentiary. And he got out, when he got out, in fact, uh, I, I met him very soon after that, and he was one of the most vibrant individuals I've ever met. And uh, I can still hear his voice. I can still feel that booming presence um and that the lovingness of the man you know so i have a lot of i have a lot of uh, i have to ask um i have to ask my mother-in-law uh, i've just put a, a text into her to see whether there was connect any connection between the families we are speaking with garrett hongo one of america's leading poets and the author of a wonderful new a very uh, rich uh, perhaps acoustically rich um, and of course, verbally rich new autobiography, The Perfect Sound, a memoir in stereo. Um, 
Garrett, we're going to take a break now, and then afterwards we're going to talk about your poison, high-end audio, and how it saved your life and reinvented you. So hold tight, everyone. We'll be back in about 60 seconds, 60 perfect seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We're back with Garrett Hongo, the author of a new autobiography, uh, The Perfect Sound, a memoir in stereo. Uh, Garrett is a very distinguished American poet. Um, uh, you end the book, Garrett, with, uh, and an, you, you say, I come from an effectless, unsentimental people. Their emotions battered by three generations of brutal life on the plantations and conditioned to its harsh disappointments, resigned to limitations of birth and station. When I was a child, I cannot remember kind words, let alone testaments of devotion between us, and the embraces we made were public and ceremonial triggered by the company of others, mostly friends, neighbors, and those married into the family. When I screamed for joy as a child, I was hushed if not struck. When I wept for the beauty I saw in the landscapes and seascapes that surrounded us, I was mocked by cousins and uncles. When I witnessed shameful acts or credible achievements, the tacit messages were always to ignore them. What was important was to persist and move on. And any singular moment of beauty was the least sibyl of our universe. But my father's music overwhelmed this impoverished inheritance, like a wave enfolding its barrier reef, barreling softly in glassy curls, foam and folds of lace. It overcame what was taboo. So was your father a rebel? Garrett, is that what you inherited from him, do you think? He was very anomalous. He was a very quiet, um, gentle presence in my life. 
Um, he suffered a lot. He had a lot of aches and pains from injuries during the war, and he was losing his hearing because of, um, uh, first of all, I think an early childhood bout with scarlet fever that made sounds faint already. And so he didn't wear a lot of air protection when he fired guns or worked at a jackhammer or worked on the Kaneohe Marine Base where they were landing jet fighters. And his hearing got worse and worse. When I was a kid, 10, 11, and 12, he built his stereos from kits and he got in the mail. And I'd watch him and, and, and try to help him, you know, uh, not helping him. Is this him, a but, picture of him or you? Oh, no, that's a picture of a, of a Czech uh, glassmaker in Prague making a vacuum. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's, so, uh, but, you, you, but, but this was an opportunity for you and your father to bond in the workshop, to physically work together on realizing perfect sound, or at least well, he would ask the quality me, of your audio. He, he didn't trust his ears as he tinkered and adjusted his stereo, not just volume and things like that, but replacing little parts and soldering things and changing tubes. He asked me to tell him what it sounded like. So I had to translate what I was hearing of his big band music and Hawaiian hotel music and tell him in Hawaiian pidgin English what it sounded like. And then we would spend evenings that way, him playing his music very loudly, my listening very carefully and trying to explain to him what it sounded like. And then he would move on to another change or we would enjoy the, the music. And then, and, and that's, that's what we did. And, and, uh, I, I'd forgotten about it until I started putting together my own stereo. Yeah, and, the, the book is in part your awakening to high-end hi-fi. Here we have an image of your very expensive and sophisticated uh, audio reproduction system. It seems to have dominated your life in some ways, Garrett. Is that fair? Yeah, I would say so. Uh, you know, I come from a family of obsessives on my father's side. Um, painters, flower arrangers, dancers. Uh, I'm talking about classical Japanese dance. And uh, my cousins raise orchids uh, for a living on flower farms in the islands. And that side of the family was ghosted, I guess, by my mother, you could say. She didn't get along with them, didn't like them. But I rediscovered them and they me when I was 30 or two or so. And I went back to the islands to give readings and they came. Um, and we reconnected. And after my father died, I went back there and lived for three years with my young family in order to try to be more like him. Um, so, yeah. So that's the authentic sound again in a, in a kind of generational sense. I wanted, yes. It's the return, wanted, the eternal wanted, return that Nietzsche talked about. I wanted to belong to where he belonged to. And I wanted it to belong to me as well, not materially, but spiritually. And I suppose the book is another kind of retrieval of that and another kind of act of filial homage. And there's an irony in a way, Garrett, at the heart of your book, because on the one hand, as you say, it's an attempt to return to your father. And on the other hand, as you say at the end, it's also a way, your, your love of music and of poetry, it's a way of breaking the taboos of your culture and your upbringing. So you do, like most of us, I guess, have a love-hate relationship with your family. Yeah, I hate I, I I I hesitate to say it as plainly as that, but I I guess if you were Leslie Fiedler and I were Herman Melville, it would stand, you know. 
Mm. What do you, I, I, sorry, I missed that reference, Garrett. I'm not as literary as you. What does that mean? Oh, Leslie Fiedler wrote a great book called Love and Death of the, in the American Novel. And there are chapters on uh, Herman Melville, you know, particularly Moby Dick. And he talked about Melville's love-hate with um, America and capitalism and exploitation. On the one hand, you know, it, it was horribly violent but also it gave him this appreciation of beauty being on the sea um and traveling as he did as a whaler so yeah uh fiedler by the way was the teacher of the great rock and roll creator grail marcus ah yeah yeah i'd love to get grail on the show your, your your book is an attempt to retrieve beauty you went to la scala here we have an image of la scala i think from the book uh, with high-end audio, did you get close? Can you get close to to borrow some some uh, Benjamin language again? Um, the work of art in the age what? of mechanical reproduction. Can we reproduce the art of La Scala in your home in Oregon uh, with uh, with your high-end audio gig? Uh, well, that was the that was the sort of challenge. Um, no, you can't. I mean, come on, La Scala is like heaven. You know, it's it's when I so went. So, if there, La Scala's like heaven, uh, Garrett, what's your high end audio in religious terms? <laughs> Purgatory, maybe. Uh, as I'm ascending the mountain, you know, um, moving towards the Empyrean. Yeah, you're always moving towards that Empyrean, that that ideal of heaven. Um, I think that the closest you can get with high end audio is. The reproduction of what's on the master tape the initial recording so you get closer to the recording this is benjamin's point you don't get close to the object itself or the experience itself you get closer to the industrial reproduction of that experience and that's what we're doing in high-end audio is we're hearing what the engineer may have heard or tried to hear or try to transmit um, and that's pretty good. Um, that's actually quite astonishing. I also say that listening to audio music is a bit like any kind of mimetic art. I, I liken it to the Bunraku Theater of Japan, where you're watching puppets enact a wonderful play. And after minutes, you're just captivated by the splendor of the art and the story. And you forget that these mechanical reproductions of individuals, you know. Of puppets. It's very romantic, and it seems uh, high-end audio seems to attract a certain, perhaps, kind of romantic male. It's a, um, an industry dominated by men. You have a um, a photo in the book of a uh, an advert for uh, some high-end musical equipment from a company called Musical Fidelity, with a rather silly, childish, adolescent joke. I've got a Woody. Um, that's uh, Kevin Neal, who's the owner of Upscale Audio. Right. What would uh, what would um, Freud make of your obsession with high-end audio? Is there something sexual about it? Do you think this attempt to retrieve perfection? Well, I'm thinking about it. Possibly. I mean, um, you. My obsession with audio was sort of like my adolescent obsession with sex, I suppose. When when you first sort of encounter it. Um, I and there's no perfect girl, is there, Garrett? There may be perfect sound. Well, you, I you wrote, wrote about, about the perfect girl in your book. 
I wrote about my first love. Yeah. And I, as I remember her, she becomes more perfect, I suppose. We're still friends. So she's coming to one of my events down in Los Angeles. I, and um, Is she I, more or less perfect than your wife? <laughs> I'm not going to say anything about that. The, uh, the obsession has to do with that you can achieve incrementally different kinds of improvements and thrills and bring yourself closer to what you think is that Empyrean or that perfection. And that you can accomplish that becomes a, a kind of drug, you know, a kind of um, uh, uh, thrill, a hit, you know. So these small little increments of improvement give you that thrill. It's almost like gambling, like um, like Dostoevsky wrote about, you know. Right. Uh, you, you, you live for that hit and that change and that improvement. And you go on and on and on, and you're you had a good show on Dostoevsky. You have a photo in in your book of the great, perhaps America's leading writer and thinker on vinyl records, Michael Fremer. Actually, from a previous life, I knew Michael. Um, you you and he look a little alike when I saw your first. Interview. Oh well, I take that as a compliment. Michael's very good looking. Um, but Michael led the renaissance of vinyl records and that's something did. that's attracted the younger generation. Perfect Sound, uh, the perfect sound your book is uh, entitled, I I'm guessing is an ironic reference to uh, CD, which was described as the perfect sound forever. There is this renaissance in, in vinyl, which is richer and perhaps less authentic or real, but somehow triggers something more emotional in us. What does the Renaissance in vinyl, particularly amongst young people, Garrett, tell us about art and music in a digital age? It seems as if young people have turned against MP3s and even CDs. And, and you are, of course, you've got lots of CDs behind you, but you're still ultimately a vinyl guy. On the other side is all my LPs. Um, we could go and take a look if you like, but really, um, I think becomes much more of an, an organic experience, a much more sensuous experience, listening to vinyl. Um, but less truthful as well. Is that fair? No, no, truth? not at all. No, no, no. no. Um, vinyl reproduces the full sound wave without any interruptions, without any pixelation. Digital reproduction reduces the sound wave to small hits, little pixels, little sound bites, if you will. Um, and the the digital to audio converter, which is embedded with an ASCD player or your so-called DAC, reconverts them that that signal these these pixelations of sound into into an uh, 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 analog. Now, vinyls is analog. It was recorded uh, as a live event. So it's the original analog. Uh, vinyl is the it's, it's the, the first it's, mover in Aristotelian terms. Is yeah, exactly. It's the first mimesis. It's the first step in mimesis. And it is as perfect as we can make it. Because and the further away we get from it, as Benjamin would tell us, the more we miss it, the more nostalgic we become. Yes, true. And vinyl brings you to the actual full sonic experience, you know, the full aural experience. It's much more sensuous. The continuity of the movement of the note within air and but also in, in production is, is fully mimicked 
by the analog sound or the vinyl sound. So when you listen so to women should novel, actually like it for its sensuousness. Yes. Uh, you know, you can you can tell that immediately if you're listening to Saravan, if you're listening to right, it would give uh, I don't know what's the equivalent if 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 uh, tubes give men a woody, what would be the ex the equivalent for women? Uh, well, this is know, a children. This is a family show, Garrett. We can't get vulgar here, but I, we can all imagine what it will make. Women. I haven't I haven't I haven't asked myself that question. Well, my my wife just bought me a uh, a new turntable for my birthday, the Riga P6, which Very is good. a nice turntable. So she, clearly, she appreciates the sensuousness. Is your wife into all this gear, Garrett? Well, um, I can't say. I, I'm not married anymore. Oh, you're not married anymore. Did your wife, when you were married, did she get pissed off with it, or did well, she? She was the one who actually bought me my uh, first sort of good audio system and it broke uh when we came back from our honeymoon is that symbolic given the marriage didn't last i don't know i mean um she's a gentle and lovely person you know what can i say yeah, I, i'm teasing you garrett i don't want to pry but uh your book is prying uh and it's autobiography the best kind of autobiography self-prying it's called The Perfect Sound, a memoir in stereo. I think anyone who loves your poetry, it's beautifully written, will appreciate the book. And anyone into music and particularly into high-end audio will find it a, a wonderfully uh, sensuous experience as a read. Usually, Garrett, we end these shows with some suggestions from my guests on books. But with you, I can't resist some suggestions, not just of a book or two to read, but a CD or two and a, and a vinyl record to listen to if we're going to get into audio, into, into music. Well, I have two new CDs I just got this past week, and I love the human voice, you know. One is um, what's called Unreleased by Cecilia Bartoli, the, the Italian oh, lovely. soprano. And there are things from Beethoven, Mozart, uh, and Haydn, uh, arias that she never put on any other CDs of hers. She's just we, this will take us back to Las. Uh, this will take us back yeah. to La Scala, will it? And uh, and then here is voice. She's a new jazz singer. I think she just won the Sarah Vaughan competition. Ah, she's wonderful, and she's got a great trio behind her, a guitar trio, and uh, she has some standards on it. And I'm going to get that. So that's a CD or a vinyl. That's it, CD. It's also available, I think, in vinyl. Oh, okay. You know, I didn't get that. And then records I like. Here's one from, um, I think it's called uh, Analog Productions. It's a reproduction of an old RCA LP called Venice by George Schulte in the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Lovely. And, and is it very, uh, very yeah. high quality? It's, yeah, wonderfully produced. You know, it's just crazy. Who, who, who makes that? Analog Productions. It's it's a reproduction of the old RCA Victor record, the um, Living Stereo, you know, with, mm. the, with the with the shaded dog. You know, lovely. Well, high quality vinyl. And I'll have to get that. I got my new I got my new turntable, so that gives me. Yeah, a good it's got the uh, overture, the, the Libyam and the overture to um, to uh, La Traviata on it, and of course, you know. Of my generation, these are the Pretenders, an album called The Isle of You, an acoustic 
version of many of their hits. And uh, I really mm -hmm. recommend this guy. This is great. This is okay. I'm gonna get them both. I'm gonna I'm gonna go down to Amoeba on um yeah on uh, on Hate Street down the road from me and buy them this afternoon. Yeah. And finally, Garrett, a book because you're a poet as well. We forget your poetry because of all this audio stuff. But what else should people be reading these days? There's a new book coming in April, National Poetry Month. It's called The Heart of American Poetry by Edward Hirsch, uh, my best friend. And uh, he was writing this book as I was finishing The Perfect Sound and we exchanged chapters every week or so and critiqued each other. And it's a great book about American poetry and the individual poems that moved him on his, his own apprenticeship quest to become a poet, the great poet that he'd become. And I really recommend it. It's like a, a throw. Yeah, uh, can, you, can, can you invite Edward onto the show? I'd love to have him on. Sure. Mm, that would sure be excellent. Well, uh, Garrett Hongo, the author of The Perfect Sound, a memoir in stereo. It's out. It's a must read. Keep searching for the impossible. Keep returning to where we can't go, Garrett. We need romantics like you because without you, life would be very boring. So thank you so much. And uh, I'm going to get Edward Hirsch on the show. And I'd love to have you back on to talk perhaps just poetry at a future date. Thank you. Thank you very much, Andrew. It was great talking with you.